You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. Good morning. Really, really great to be here this morning. We are in our final week of Uh, the Paul series, as you can see. I think it's the sixth week. And so we're going to wrap it up today. And what I'm going to do is take us through uh, the final years of Paul's life. So last week we ended with Paul in Ephesus. This week we're going to go all the way to Paul in Rome, cover all that uh, time in between. And Rome is where Paul uh, eventually died. So we're going to get right into it. Um, and, And when we look at these last like nine to ten chapters of Acts, Acts 19 through 28, a lot of ground recovering. Uh, there's one message that I get from this about Paul, and it's, it's a man who knows his purpose. It's a man with direction. And so what we're going to talk about today is direction. We're going to look at Paul. We're going to relate that back to our lives, and we're going to start in verse 21, chapter 19. Now, after these events, this is Paul in Ephesus, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, And go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Okay, so that's the one sentence we're looking at right now. What stands out to me is Paul resolved in the Spirit. Those words. Paul's in Ephesus, and he resolved in the Spirit to pass through these areas, to go to Jerusalem, and then to Rome. Now, this is a very very atypical, or not typical, statement, resolved in the Spirit. It's very atypical behavior. We resolve to do a lot of things, okay? Uh, We make up our mind to do a lot of things, and we think about the direction of our life. But I want you to think about the types of decisions that we make, whether it be uh, to have kids, uh, more kids. Maybe it's to move to a certain location. Maybe it's to take a job promotion. I don't know, but there's big life decisions, right? We make uh, these resolutions. We, We make up our mind, but how often do we make those decisions in the spirit? What Paul has is something that I call holy resolve. It's making up your mind about something with the Holy Spirit. Those big life decisions with the Holy Spirit. There's others of us that just truly don't resolve to do anything, right? Uh, and, and I fall into this all the time. Um, you have a kid. I just, I've got a seven and a half month old baby and it's like, Things start to happen, and the kids grows up, kid grows up, and you get a new job, and you have new responsibilities and promotions, etc., etc., and you start going through the motions of life, forgetting what it is that you're aiming for. You easily forget, what, where am I going in life? What's the next step? What's my, what's my purpose? I think that we as a people, generally, uh, we lack a sense of direction and a sense of purpose in our life. We, just, we end up just going through the motions. So I'm captivated uh, by, this, by stories of, of people who have done amazing things with their lives, and Paul is one of them. William Wilberforce is another. If y'all heard Mark preach last week, he brought up uh, William Wilberforce. And I just want to tell you about this man. He was born in 1759. Uh, brilliant guy, born very wealthy um, in England. He ended up uh, getting elected to Parliament in 1780 when he was 21 years old. And he writes in his journal, the first years in Parliament, I did nothing. 
Nothing to any purpose. He was known to be a very uh, sociable guy, uh, intelligent, just very likable. Um, and so he, he got along well with other politicians, and he rised to the top very quickly, but he didn't have much of a sense of purpose or direction. And he, it led to this period of deep reflection, which led to intense sorrow because he realized he had just wasted years of his life. This eventually led to a spiritual rebirth. And he gained a sense of purpose and realized that he didn't want anything to do with this, this politicking. And uh, you think of politics, and he wrote in his journal that the, the endless dinner parties and the meaningless conversations, or whatever the, the politicians were known for, he wanted nothing to do with it, but he was called to remain in the public sphere. His close friend of his started talking to him about slavery. Slavery was in full force uh, in Europe back then. The slave trade was, just as it was here. And as he got to know more about it, he said these words, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of moral values. At 28 years old, he said, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the abolition of the slave, tra slave trade and the reformation of moral values. And he gave his life to this. 35-ish years of his life he gave to this. He writes again, so enormous, so dreadful, so irredeemable did the slave trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for ab abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I was from this time forth determined that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. You talk about a calling, man. That's what I'm doing with my life. And he knew it. He died three days after hearing in 1833 that uh, the, slavery, the Slavery Abolition Act of England had been passed. Three days after the act was passed, uh, he passed away. And he was one of a handful of people that were integrally involved in ending slavery. He gave his life to that cause. What sticks out to me about William Wilberforce's life is that statement that God Almighty has set before me two great objects. I have this, every time I hear a story, I come across it all the time in the Christian sphere because he was an incredible Christian man, right? But every time I hear this story, I have this deep longing inside of me to do something great. I have this deep longing inside of me for a sense of purpose, to work towards something, to accomplish something great, or at least something that's greater than myself. And we've all got this. Whether you know it or not, there is a, a burning fire inside of you that needs purpose to accomplish something for the sake of the kingdom of God, for the betterment of humanity. And so he speaks to me. Um, we need something to work towards. Where is your life going? What is the direction of your life? Is a question this morning. And as we, get, as we get back to Paul's story, what I want us to see is, is what are the reasons? How can, we, how can we figure out where to go? What are good reasons to pursue a certain object in our life? For one, it's got to be spirit-led. Paul writes in, uh, in Acts chapter 20, don't put it up yet. I'll get there. He, he's, he's talking to the, uh, to the Ephesian elders. He says, I'm constrained by the spirit to go back to Jerusalem. 
I'm bound in the spirit to go back to Jerusalem. Paul knew that even though afflictions awaited him and imprisonment awaited him because the spirit told him so, that he had to go, spirit-led. This is holy resolve. This is making decisions based on the Holy Spirit, where it's telling you to go. But I want you to know, too, this wasn't just a blind act of faith. It wasn't like, well, the Spirit is telling me to go, so I have to go for no particular, I don't know why. No, there were very practical reasons why he did this, too. Now, I had a friend uh, at, uh, at Church of the Center a few years ago. He's no longer there, but he came up to me one night after service, and he said, uh, Jake, I'm moving to Colorado. God, Spirit of God told me last night I need to move to Colorado. And I was just kind of taken aback, very random. I said, well, why? What for? And he's like, well, I, I just, God just told me to move to Colorado. Well, the conversation goes on, and, and about five minutes into it, he starts talking about this girl that he met online who lives in Colorado, and it started to make sense to me. The point is that there are always going to be practical reasons for making decisions, and just because there's practical reasons doesn't make those decisions inherently less spiritual, okay? But they've got to be the right reasons. Paul had the right reasons for going to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. And his reasons stemmed from selflessness, all right? Well, they were need-based, really. They were need-based decisions. There's a need. I can meet it. I'm going to go there. That's how he decided to do this. So, so he writes in Romans, which is a book to the Romans. He had still yet never been to Rome. He's like, I've been longing to see you uh, for a, a, a long time now, but I've been restrained. I haven't been able to come see you because there's been more pressing work in all of these other areas. There were already Christians in Rome that Paul didn't convert. They were there. There was already a church starting. There were other places uh, where there was no church. So Paul had to go to these places. But he said, finally, he says, finally, my work here is finished. And I can go along to you. I can come along to you, he writes to the Romans. So there's one practical reason. My work here is finished. I can finally come to you. But he says, uh, I'm going to go to Jerusalem because I have a collection. Paul was going about all of the, the Gentile churches in the Roman Empire, and collecting money to bring back to Jerusalem for the poor. There were a lot of poor Christians in Jerusalem, and he wanted to, he wanted to bring them money. It was part of his responsibility. So needs-based. Very practical reason to go back to Jerusalem. Give money to the poor. He wants to go to Rome because Rome is kind of the center of the world at that point in time. You think about this, the, the strategy in his mind about how to take the gospel to the ends of the world and how to influence people. Um, Rome is where all the huge politicians were, etc. So he wanted, he wanted to get there. He also wanted to be a good pastor. That church, um, that church was there, but he wanted to be able to preach and teach the gospel to them, just as we do to you here. Very practical reasoning. But here we can bring up Acts chapter 20. And I want you to listen to Paul here. He says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, my life is not my own. It's not about me. 
My life is not precious to me. The only thing I care about is finishing the work that I was given by God to do. It's completing my ministry, my service to the world, my purpose in life. That's, that's all I care about. I know that imprisonment and affliction and eventually death await me, but all I care about is my ministry, is what I was placed on this earth to do, is to serve. One of my favorite scriptures is where Jesus says that even the Son of Man, he's speaking of himself, came not to be served, but to serve. Think about that. God Almighty, your creator, stepped down onto this earth not to be served like he so rightfully deserves, but to serve. That's a truly incredible example of selflessness. Needs-based decisions. Now, I'm going to be the first to admit, actually, it's been coming a Kind of more and more aware to me that, that my greatest sin, I think, that I'm aware of in my life is seeking comfort. All too often, I make comfort-based decisions. Especially the, the bigger decisions I make in life and, and the smaller ones too. It's all about what, what brings me the most pleasure. What keeps me from uh, having to experience you know, the most amount of pain? How can I avoid suffering and how can I be more comfortable? I don't want to suffer. Honestly, I'd, I think I'd rather die today than live the rest of my life suffering. I just, it, the thought of being a Christian is hard and obeying God and living a, an obedient life in general, it's hard. And I vehemently try to avoid that. I think we all do. And in our culture, in our country, how easy is it to find comfort in things that are not of God? The question should be for us, when we're making these decisions, when we're seeking holy resolve, is not, what do I have to gain? It's, what do I have to give? That needs to be what's going on in our mind in every decision that we make. When we think about, where am I going with my life? What am I called to do? It's not, what do I have to gain? It's, what do I have to give? And that is utterly important. Jesus says, too, that those who seek to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake will save it. Paul's clearly got that down. He's clearly got that down. My life's not worth anything to me. And so he gains eternal life in Jesus Christ. So Paul made up his mind to go to Jerusalem and then to Rome. Uh, but how does he carry it out? Just as important as making the decision is also succeeding, or at least attempting to succeed in what we set out to do. So we go along in the story, and it's, it's a pretty incredible story. Paul goes to Jerusalem. He brings him the collection. He's only there for a few days, and uh, he gets arrested immediately for no, not really any good reason. He's getting beaten to a pulp by this mob, and a Roman tribune or peacekeeper comes in and uh, kind of stops the whole ordeal, and he's getting ready to bring Paul uh, into, into jail or prison or whatever. And uh, Paul says, wait, can I speak to my people? The ones that were just beating you up? Yeah, he says, can I speak? So he lets him speak to the Jews, and Paul starts preaching the gospel to the people who were just beating him up to shreds. He starts pre preaching the gospel. And then they get super angry. Um, he's halfway through. They want to uh, stone him to death or whatever. So the Roman tribune, uh, just to 
save Paul's life, takes him in, uh, into custody. And while he's in custody, this, this Roman tribune, again, wants to get information out of him. So he's got this, this whip, you know, with like the glass shards, and the, if you've seen The Passion of Christ. He's got this whip, he's getting a flagellum is what, what it's called. And he's getting ready to, to beat the pulp out of Paul again. And Paul says, wait, did you know I'm a Roman citizen? I deserve a fair trial. And so he's like, okay, crap. Well, well he puts him on a trial. And uh, on trial, in front of the Jews and, and the Greeks, the Romans, whatever, Paul again preaches the gospel. And it's on trial that he's, he appeals to Caesar, which means he says, I'm a Roman citizen. I don't want to be tried in Jerusalem. I want to be tried in Rome. Because he knows if he goes to Jerusalem that they're just going to take his, they're, they're going to kill him, right? They don't want him to live. But as a Roman citizen, I want to be tried in Rome because I know that I'm innocent. And what that means for Paul is he now has the protection of remaining in custody from the Romans, he will not get his life taken at the hands of the Jews. And so, Paul's going to Rome. Another obstacle that turns into an opportunity. See where I'm getting? So Paul's on his way to Rome, but wait, before he even gets on a ship, uh, the, the Roman governor, because they want uh, money from Paul and they're trying to impress the Jews or whatever, they keep Paul in custody for two years. So it just totally delays his plans in going to Rome. He's in uh, Caesarea for, for two years, and he uses that as an opportunity to preach the gospel to Felix, the, the governor, and his wife, two extremely influential people. He doesn't get, he doesn't get down. He turns an obstacle into, into an opportunity. So finally, a new governor comes into place. Uh, he ships Paul away to Rome, and on the ship with 275 other prisoners— there's this crazy storm at sea, and they're about to go down, and Paul has this incredible vision or whatever, and says how this whole ship will be saved. And they land, they crash and burn, you know, and, uh, but everyone's, everyone lives. They end up on the island of Malta, this island kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And the first thing that happens on the island is Paul gets snake bit. Snake bites him in the hand, and, and the people on the island look at him, and they say, oh, he must be a murderer. That's a sign from God. But he shakes off the snake like it's nothing, and they say, He's a god. Another obstacle turned into opportunity. He starts healing people, doing incredible things. He converts a bunch of people on the island of Malta. They have high respect for him. They give them everything they need and ship them off months later to go to Rome again. This arrest in the first place was the very means by which Paul got to Rome, by which he accomplished what he set out to do of getting to Rome. Truly incredible. <laughs> For me, I am so uh, guilty of using obstacles as a cop-out. All right, it's like I preach a bad sermon, and I'm just like, ah, I'm not a preacher anymore, you know? I don't know, I don't know if I'm called to do this. Like, I question myself. Anything bad happens, any obstacles come up in my way, I, I just lose the resolve that I had that I started with in the first place and set out to do something. But Paul doesn't do that. Sticks with it. And here's another important thing. We can't make the, the mistake of thinking this is all Paul. If you guys read these nine chapters of Acts, again, it's a lot. Um, but what stands out to me is that he has a lot of help and a lot of encouragement. One from, from Christ himself and from God. Multiple times, um, Christ shows up when Paul's behind bars and maybe he's getting a little bit down. And Christ says, Paul, take courage. Because you're going to Rome. You must preach in Rome. 
God reaffirms him in those times that seem most desperate. He shows up. When the ship's about to go down, an angel of God speaks to Paul and says, everybody on the ship is going to live. Don't worry. Don't fear. Again and again, God shows up and gives him what he needs. And so in our walk, in our, in our quest to carry out our, our goals and our plans and whatever, it's like, how intimate are you with God? How, how are you listening to God? When you face obstacles, are you willing to, are, are you close enough with God that he can speak to you in these ways? I mean, that's, that's really the reason that God calls us to any of this anyways. He, he wants a relationship with us. Accomplishments without a relationship with God don't mean anything. Paul also gets encouragement and help and prayer from others. It was his nephew that found out that the Jews wanted to kill him. And his nephew went and told the governor and, and really helped to save Paul's life, get him out of a bad situation. When Paul's in prison, his friends, they come and they attend to his needs and they see him every day and they, they encourage him. And he writes to the Romans before, uh, before he goes to Jerusalem in, in the book of Romans. Um, he says, I'm coming for you, but I need you all to pray for me. He says, please pray for me so that by the will of God, I might get to you. We cannot do this alone. The, the community of believers is necessary for every single one of us to live up to our, our calling and our purpose, to fulfill that which we're, we're made to do. So are you praying for those that are closest to you? Are you praying for your leaders in the church? I know I need your prayers. And for each one of us, are you willing to receive? I think that's, that's a really, um, maybe even a more relevant question. Are you willing to receive? I think all the time about like uh, how when Christians, we used to have a dog, okay, this is a good example. So we used to have a dog. We got rid of her because of our, our baby. And uh, anyway, um, I never wanted her in the first place. So <laughs> when we used to have our dog, we'd go out of town and we'd have people watch our dog. And depending on who was watching it, there was this, like, we'd get back after a couple days or a week, and we'd say, should we give them money? Should we pay them for this service? And when it's non-Christians, I say, absolutely yes. When it's someone who's not in my church family, absolutely yes, pay them for what they did. But when it's in the church family, what, very, I'm very hesitant to pay people for, like, babysitting or watching a dog or whatever, because what it's telling them is that um, their service is only, like, it's... Um, like I'm responsible for paying them for serving me. And what that means is that the next time I help them, they're going to feel responsible for paying me for my service to them. But we innately feel this way. We feel like we just, we, we owe each other things. If we do, and, and we don't. We owe each other our lives. Yes. <laughs> and we need to watch out for one another. But what, do we, what messages are we sending to each other? We've got to be willing to just receive with open arms, from others in our community. And, last point here, we need to be in community. If you don't have relationships with others in the church and have other people praying for you daily and helping you out and encouraging you and whatever, you don't have a shot. You just don't. And in a community this large at Schweitzer, um, that's why small groups are so important. Life groups, band meetings, mentorships, I mean, all these different types of relationships, whatever you want to call them, that's why those are so important. So Paul made it to Rome, 
Uh, it tells us at the end of Acts that he was there um, with relatively uh, no hiccups whatsoever for two years. And then, we don't know this for certain, but he probably went on to Spain, which was truly the end of, of the known world at that point in time. He carried the gospel to the ends of the world. He was probably in Spain for, for a little while, and he ended up back in Rome, where he was, he was imprisoned by the emperor Nero and beheaded. And tradition tells us he was beheaded on the same day as the apostle Peter, who was crucified. Now, just days or weeks or a short time before Paul died, he writes in his letter to Timothy. Y'all can read this. It's, it's in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Would you put that up on the screen? He writes this to Timothy. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This urging of Timothy to fulfill his ministry, above all things, fulfill your ministry. I fought the good fight. Isn't it weird that Paul just, he knows his life is almost over. He just has a sense of this. And you read uh, 2 Peter, and Peter writes the same thing. He says, he says, my time has come. I have very little time left here on this earth because Jesus told me that. But I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Man, I want to be able to look back on my life and say those words. And the reason is because, like he says, I, I've received... I'm going to receive the, the award. That's what I, the crown of righteousness is waiting up there for me. And don't make the mistake of, saying you, of thinking that you, you can earn that, okay? You cannot earn the crown of righteousness. But you absolutely can enjoy the fruitful labors that led to it. Compared to our view of a good life, um, compared to the American dream, I would say Paul lived a rather crappy life. Did he not? Think of the things that we pursue. Think about retirement. How many of us seek to just, you know, I, I just want to travel. I just want to have kids. I just want to go to the lake on the weekends, you know? And so many people look back and they say, you know, I've lived a good life. And what they mean is I've, it's been a really comfortable life. I did a great job at, at enjoying myself. And it's empty. It's empty. Those people will never be the ones that others remember. Maybe some immediate family that misses them or whatever, but they'll never be the ones like William Wilberforce, like Paul, like John Wesley, like Harriet Tubman, like Gandhi, Nelson Mandela. You know, I mean, just the list goes on. They will never be the people that made a dent in the world. I don't want to look back on my life and say, man, I've, I've been super comfortable. I want to say, I finished the work that I was set here to do. And for Paul and for us, that needs to be, for Paul, that was the driving force of everything that he did. And it should be for us too. So I've got a few questions to end with you today. Is, um, 
how can we fight the good fight if we don't know what we're fighting for? How can we finish the race if we don't know where we're running to? How can we fulfill our ministry if we don't know what our ministry is? That's my challenge to you today. Seek holy resolve in your life. Not every one of us might be uh, lucky enough to get the type of calling that William Wilberforce got or that Paul got, you know, to say, you are gonna abolish slavery, you know. Um, but what's, even just like the next like two years of your life, what, where are you going? And to what end, for what purpose? That's what I challenge you to figure out today in the spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, are ever so grateful that you seek to transform the world. We're ever so grateful to be called to your mission and to your purposes. It's such a privilege to do your work. It really is. I pray for all of us that uh, we can begin to see um, suffering for your sake as an honor, as a privilege, um, and to find joy in it. Even when the suffering is just personal and spiritual. Um, God, give us a heart to serve. I pray that you speak into each one of our hearts where it is that you're calling us to, in the short term and in the long term. And we ask all of this in your name and for your, uh, for your glory, not our own. In Jesus' name, amen.